So in my book, um, mermaids hold the sea's memories. So the sea is like this omnipresent, omniscient uh, being. And when she has memories that demand to be held, a mermaid's born. It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that makes a splash is on the Mermaid Podcast. Hello, you're listening to the Mermaid Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Von Holt, the Fairy Boss Mother. Hi, Mer friends. Today, I am sharing an interview with Maggie Tokuda Hall, the author of a new book entitled The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea. I really enjoyed reading this book and was excited to speak with Maggie about her writing process and how all of her world travels influence the story. Maggie invented some very interesting mermaid mythology for this book, and I think you'll be intrigued by the role of mermaids as memories of the sea. Links to the book will be in the show notes. But before we get to this interview, I'd like to introduce you to one of my fellow podcasters from the Frolic Podcast Network. Please meet Dateable. Is monogamy dead? Are we expecting too much of Tinder? Do millennials even want to find love? The Dateable Podcast, part of the Frolic Network, is an insider's look into modern dating that the Huffington Post calls one of the top 10 podcasts about love and sex. I'm your host, Yue Shu, former dating coach turned dating sociologist. You'll also hear from my co-host, Julie Kraftchik. On each episode, we'll talk to real daters about everything, from sex parties to sex droughts, date fails to diaper fetishes, and first moves to first loves. Tune in every Wednesday on your favorite podcast player as we explore this crazy dateable world. I'm Maggie Takuda Hall. I'm the uh, author of Also an Octopus and now The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea. Uh, and I'm a full time writer. Awesome. Making stories all the time. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I've been reading your book and I really like it. I have a lot of mermaid questions. Um, oh. But just so we give people a little background, can you give kind of the premise of the book so they know what we're dealing with? Yeah, totally. So The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea follows two kids uh, who are sort of at opposite sides of a single coin. Um, One is like a very privileged rich girl named Evelyn, but she's been sold off into an arranged marriage that she has zero interest in. Um, And she gets onto this ship called the Dove, uh, which is a, unbeknownst to her, a pirate ship masquerading as a passenger vessel. Um, And that's where she meets Florian, or Flora, who's a uh, bi-gender pirate, and they sort of hit it off. um, And in forging a connection to one another, they realize they kind of need to strike out on their own, and adventure ensues in magic and all the things that the title promises. Yes, there is a mermaid, there is a witch, there is Mm -hmm. the sea. It's a, (laughs) they're all there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I... I really enjoy, I love the characters. They're both like very, very distinctive. Um, and the world that you have set the book in, can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with with that? Because it's part fantasy, part real. It also feels partly historical. Yeah, I think the historical feel comes from the fact that I stole uh, a lot of details from history. Great! <laughs> My favorite kind. <laughs> is totally made up um and i tried to make each nation state that exists in this fantastical sort of uh setting based on at least two nations sort of like a combination of ones that exist 
So the imperial class, which is the class that Evelyn belongs to, is sort of a combination Japanese and American-British colonial empire. Um, and the nation that Flora comes from, Tustui, is like a combination Rwanda and like Peru. Um, and the floating islands where they go, I thought was sort of a combination of the Greek islands and Northern Colombia, um, was, that was sort of like the landscape that it's based on. Um, and a lot of the myths that are from all over are from all over the world that I've just sort of picked up ad hoc. Um, when Evelyn boards the dove, she boards with her casket in tow with all of her belongings in it. I loved that detail. That was like, whoa. (laughs) Right. Totally stolen from real life. (laughs) Um, that's where the vampire myth in New Orleans came from. So French girls were sent over to New Orleans to meet their husbands with their caskets as a show from their family that they were serious. I heard this on a ghost tour in New Orleans. I have never substantiated it. I do not care if it's true or not. I just think it's such a cool idea that I was like, stolen. It's in my fiction now. Uh, (laughs) so like things like that are stolen from history, um, the stories that the nation states tell themselves and that the witch tells are uh, modified from different myths and different folklore. Yeah. Um, there's one Buddhist story in there. Uh, the one about pain kind of being universal mm-hmm. uh, is a Buddhist story. Um, and let's see what else. Because I know I stole so many things from real life. Oh, the way that the Imperials sort of just rebuild the same architecture everywhere is very much based on the way that colonialism tends to function. Um, I wrote so much of this while we were traveling through South America, and I was blown away that every cathedral was the same. And that idea of just kind of like moving the exact same thing, but just with the materials that were available in that particular geography was such a fascinating and cool concept and also colors so much of what each country, what made each country feel distinct while still feeling unified by such a heavy Spanish influence. Mm. Um, was something that I thought a lot about, thought about a lot while we were traveling. And so when I was writing that appears in the way that, you know, colonialism kind of informs the settings that are written. Yeah. Um, I really like that too. It made me, I'm glad you said that you were traveling because I, when you, I was reading the book, I was like, I mean, it's a travel story because they're on a boat adventure. Right. <laughs> but I was reminded of um, like, well, I grew up in Hawaii, which has a much more Asian influence. So the mm-hmm. buildings there have a lot more of an Asian influence. But I remember going to Puerto Rico and expecting like an island thing and seeing all the like old San Juan like Spanish architecture and I was like thrown off because I was like my that's not my island experience and yeah uh, yeah it's like you're like oh this is a totally opposite place but we at, like they just pick it all up and move it <laughs> like or I know, it's it. so wild it's yeah. so wild that idea it's so arrogant I feel like of colonial powers when they come into a place and there's an existing geography that works in harmony with you know the geography that exists there yeah. and they're like no 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 listen yeah. here it's going to be a perfect square, and it's going to be in the middle of your city. Yeah, like, oh, okay. And then also, once you, like, I mean, I live in New York, and I'm always, like, they just called it New York. Like, they just, like, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> like, same place, different place. Yeah. The lack of creativity is, like... Yeah, just, of all the wild. names in all the world, it's just New York. Yeah. <laughs> Great. 
We have so many New, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's all right. That's fine. That name worked the first time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, well, that, okay, that's cool to hear um, all of your different sources. I did kind of notice that a little bit. Um, but the one of my favorite themes is the idea of the sea, and she acts as kind of like a goddess. Like she's yeah. got a personality and kind of a mem- and a memory and a will. Yeah. Yeah. Did that come from anywhere or was that just... Yes, it absolutely did. And actually that leads us into mermaids because the sea being an actual point of view character was born out of the mythology that I created. Like my own mermaid lore kind of demanded the sea to be a character. So in my book, um, mermaids hold the sea's memories. So the sea is like this omnipresent, omniscient uh, being and when she has memories that demand to be held, a mermaid's born. Um, and so they kind of like rise from her depths and they hold that memory. So when someone steals a mermaid or kills a mermaid, she loses that memory. Um, and she becomes more volatile and it's very upsetting for her. And it's, you know, uh, a real violation. Um, and this is going to sound like a left field turn, but I promise these things are leaked. <laughs> okay. So my mom's hobby is to pull invasive non-native plants from California state parks. <laughs> Love her. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Great. She's amazing. Okay. Um, this is what she does with her spare time. Uh, and the reason that it's so important, particularly in California, to do that is that California is a fire climate. So our native plants have almost like a memory of how fire works. And so they're meant to be burnt down and to grow back every year, right? Or every few years. Um, one of the problems with our California fires now is that we have so many invasive non-native plants that when they light on fire, like a eucalyptus tree, they will literally explode and pass the fire everywhere else because those trees were never meant to be lit on fire. And so this idea of human intervention and greed creating a situation where nature loses its memory like its proprietary memory and becomes more dangerous because of it mm-hmm. was such an interesting idea to me. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I got the idea for how my mermaids function was this idea that they're the proprietary memory of the sea. They're that's that thing that makes nature capable of regulating itself. Yeah. Um, and without them, the sea is a more dangerous place. Uh, and that's, so that's, yeah, that's why my mermaids are gross and weird. No, that's cool. <laughs> so without, so if the sea doesn't have her memory, she loses kind of her own institutional knowledge about how she, like, works and best. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's she cool. She has photos, and she has people, human people, that she prefers. Like, she yeah. prefers people who protect mermaids mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Obviously, and I believe yeah. it. So I'm like, this is a 100% a fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the threat that the Imperials pose to the sea is that they have zero interest in protecting mermaids, um, and so do some of the pirates. And so uh, she aligns herself with people who will protect them, and people who don't are subject to her, you know, her anger. But if enough mermaids are taken away, then she will be that dangerous to everyone. Ah, uh, the balance that has to threat. be. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. So, and along with memory, in one of the very first chapters, I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts for it later, but in the one of the very first chapters, when you introduce the idea of mermaids, um, Florian's, Florian's working on the, the dove with um, their brother, and uh, they have to go to the some bar or brothel and find their brother, and he's drunk on mermaid's blood. 
So tell us about people and how they use mermaid's blood. Yeah. uh, Twist. The mermaid's blood is also hallucinogenic. (laughs) Uh, Because I kind of felt like if they're stealing the memories from the sea, then if you drank it, it would be kind of a cool, or like if you somehow, I decided on drinking blood because I I like vampires and gross things and grotesquery. So if you ingest some part of the mermaid, then you would have that memory for a short period of time, but that it would also knock out some memories that you hold. Like it would be a real oblivion drug. And I feel like that's one of the things we seek the most when we, substance abuse is like to distance ourselves our our mind from ourselves and so it does that incredibly effectively while also distancing yourself from your own memories while also holding the kind of allure that I feel like mermaids hold in all stories which is the promise of adventure and of beauty and of something beyond yourself and something inhuman and unfathomable um that sort of like put into this package that is very much, I feel like traditionally about male gaze. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to upend that as well. That is cool. I, I, I would definitely, um, made that connection myself. Like, of course you're like, when, when we do abuse substances, we're trying to escape something or get rid of something or Mm -hmm. like, you know, make a shortcut around something we don't really want to deal with. Um, and, uh, it made me think too, when the, the way that it's used in your book, um, of the opposite side of that of legends where like a mermaid tear might cure illness, you know, or people be like, if you eat mermaid flesh, I think it could cure you. And then, or if you crush up a unicorn horn, you can be more virile, like all of these different tears that (laughs) have like been told through history. Um, but I love the idea that people, of course, like people would be like, I know what I'll do is abuse this substance of mermaid's blood. That's the right answer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what they would do. <laughs> if we know anything about ourselves, it's that we can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Um, so in the voyage that they are taking, um, some of the pirates, well, they're called sailors, but they're technically pirates. But yeah. uh, the, uh, Florian and Evelyn witness the pirate sailors pulling up a mermaid that they've caught in a net. Right. And um, I noticed that in when they pulled her up, they were surprised because she, they had, a, I think, I don't think Evelyn had seen one before. And it was like shriveled up and smaller and like kind of grotesque. And yeah. that made me think of um, the Fiji mermaids that are in museums or like, yeah, yeah they're like, totally. And I was wondering, I wondered if that it was kind of an image that you were thinking of. It, you know, it wasn't, but it was one of those things that then later readers were like, oh, like a Fiji mermaid. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great. Perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, what I was really thinking was that when humans intervene mm-hmm. and take this natural element out of the place where it belongs, it's no longer the beautiful thing that it has the possibility to be. It becomes a shriveled version of itself. Mm-hmm. And that it was supposed to be more sort of like a visual metaphor for sort of the ways that we abuse nature and the way that it doesn't it's no longer it's best it's no longer it's most beautiful when you like this is going to sound a little cliche but when you put a bird in a cage it's a really different animal than one that's flying around and it's just not capable of containing the same kind of multitudes and beauty that it can when it's in the world and doing what it's meant to do and so I wanted the mermaids to like directly reflect that where like 
when they're pulled out of the water, they're just disgusting. And you can drink their blood and you can abuse them, but, like, that's not where they are their best. That is not where they are meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's it's um, kind of like when you catch a fish and then if you try, like, from the ocean, then you try to keep it. It's like, it swims around in a bucket and it's like, this is not going to work. And, and the mermaid that they keep in the barrel, uh, she starts withering quite quickly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I realized I should have put in there as somebody who's had fish before, and this just occurred to me like last week. <laughs> of uh, yeah, Second like, edition. Is, yeah. There's nothing I can do about this now. <laughs> but one of the reasons fish get sick is that they shit in the water. And if you don't have enough like filter, oh. that's one of the reasons they get sick is it like they, they can't breathe. They're, you know, being choked by their own shit. Oh yeah. And being, uh, excuse my language. I'm That's, sorry. I forgot you can start the podcast. It's totally okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, geez. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So we already said caskets and blood. Right. I think like, just go ahead. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, and I would have loved to have put that in, in yeah. retrospect just to go full grotesquery. Uh, yeah. but it only occurred to me literally last week. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, it's not <laughs> like, no, that is a really good point. And I, you did say something though about how like it was in stale, dirty water, and Evelyn was like noticing like that, like obviously it wouldn't last in like stale old water. Yeah, uh, I think I remembered that water gets gross. Yeah. I just forgot the reason why. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I think you still made your point because we were yeah. like, yeah, in this dirty old barrel, it's not gonna live. <laughs> like it usually like lives in its mother goddess environment as like yeah. a beautiful representation of a memory, and now it's just like shriveled in a barrel. So I think you still made your yeah. point. Um, yeah. And then what? Another thing that I loved is when Evelyn discovered how to feed the mermaid, and mm. and it's pretty. It's pretty gross too, but but gross in a good way. Like I didn't think anything in your book was so was gross, gross. gross. Yeah, but it wasn't like gross where I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, gross. Awesome. So yeah, she does find. I'll just tell them because like yeah. you find out like, about a third of the book, so I'm not spoiling anything. Um, it turns out that the mermaid only feeds on blood so it has this like vampiric element which i, yeah. I liked because i connected it to your caskets um by the way i think the casket thing is real because i have a friend who wrote another ya book about it and she lives in new orleans so it yeah seems like so, okay. it's, it's just that i heard it on a ghost tour yeah and never verified no, i also will take one fact or something like that and be like now now this is a whole other thing so legit yeah. legit research <laughs> legit process um, um but I, yeah i love that because it was grotesque it did kind of harken back to the caskets and it was uh kind of vampiric um but also i like the way that then um evelyn became connected to the sea like right. she had fed and it was this kind of like circle of life full circling like she fed the mermaid yeah. like the sea like cares then for evelyn uh, yeah. and it becomes this like a symbiotic partnership so yeah, there's like a sense of reciprocity. So the way that magic works in this world is that everything that you take with magic has a cost. So if you get some kind of power, you lose some piece of yourself. Um, and you know, the mermaid's blood's like a perfect example of it, where like you drink it and you get to see these amazing visions and that are actually the sea's memories, but you lose a piece of yourself. And if you do that enough times, you lose complete track of yourself which is why the sort of chief antagonist of the book is named the Nameless Captain, because he's just forgotten. Like, he doesn't know. <laughs> he just knows he's in charge. It was, like, <laughs> a perfect name for, like, an alcoholic, but he's, like, a mermaid blood alcoholic. So, yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> fits, that yeah, fits. right? He's just yeah. completely lost a sense of himself. Yeah. And it might be that at some point in his life he had a moral compass, but yeah. not, not anymore. Not anymore, no. <laughs> um, 
And so I liked the idea of this kind of coddled rich girl um, giving something back. Like, at the first opportunity to be kind, she takes it. And I hope that that's a redeeming thing because she is somebody with an unfathomable amount of privilege in this world. Um, And in order to make her a likable character, I wanted her to be somebody who was genuinely really pure of heart. Um, And so actually, when I first started writing this book eight years ago, the very first scene I wrote was the scene where she demands that the mermaid gets tossed back. Uh, um, and that was like really where I started was like from the sailor's point of view who I didn't know yet watching this girl demand this thing and like that being a, a starting point for a loving relationship yeah. um, and so that was really where like Evelyn's heart was born was in this moment where she can be kind yeah I think that was, was a kind of interesting theme that that goes through each character and a lot of the scenes is that um, things do not appear to be what they are and people have a lot of opportunity to act in an unexpected way. So, uh, yeah, you all go. But because there's a, a couple other characters that, um, that appear to be one thing and you find out they have another purpose later. Um, you have Evelyn as a rich girl who... And you know, and one of the reasons why the dove takes on passengers and then and then uh, keeps them as hostages and sells them into slavery is that they're like, well, they're all bad rich people from the imperial mm-hmm. capital, and they don't care about anybody. And we are like, we are have had like less fortunate. We're just like people trying to make our way, you know. Like, yeah. so we're gonna yeah. take it out on these people. Um, and then you have Evelyn, who like seems to have a kind heart, and she's not as snobby, and she's got like a different moral compass. So that endears her to someone like Florian, who's only known um, cruelty from people of her right. class. Um, and then right. then you have Florian, or Florian, who uh, is is presented to the crew and the passengers as a boy, but is born female and as bigendered, as you said. And, and then also, and then also like the mermaid is all shriveled. And then later on you see what mermaids are supposed to look like and it's more beautiful, you know? Um, And the sea seems one way and has the opportunity to be another. And so, but it it felt very much like a, like a mermaidy kind of theme that, um, it, I think it's kind of like that reciprocity thing. It's like, it, it is what you put into it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really wanted for every character I wrote was for them not to be easily pegged as a type, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. And so they're all presented as types. And then I hope that through the plot and through the opportunities that they're given, they prove to go against type in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um and I genuinely believe that all people contain multitudes and are interesting and complicated and believe that they're doing the right thing most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted my characters to reflect that. And I wanted them to reflect the depths of the horrible things that we do yeah. in the fact that I do genuinely believe that for the most part, most people re- deserve redemption. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. Uh, everybody in the story has an identity and a secret identity. Um, Like a a front-facing mask and what's inside uh, that is really apparent. And I made that choice very consciously um, because it's a young adult book. And I feel like when you're a teenager, 
What I remember most powerfully was that sense of every day realizing I was crafting an identity. Mm -hmm. Like, because you're coming of age, because you're deciding who you are, there's, like, a lot more experimentation and a lot of differentiation between who you are on the outside and who you feel like on the inside. And I feel like those are the most disparate as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope that when teens read this book, they'll be able to see themselves in a variety of different characters because everyone is kind of playing that game. Mm -hmm. We all play it for our entire lives to some extent, but I feel like when you're a teenager, it's the most acute and you're the most like day-to-day aware of it. And then by the time you're an adult and your personality is a little more calcified, you probably forget that you're doing that. Yeah, and it so clearly happens, I think, with teenagers and also in the book that each character is a different person with different people. Like, yeah. Evelyn's very different with her family, and Florian's very different with their brother, and the ca- yeah, the captain, and, I mean, just, like, all the characters. Um, uh, so, I yeah, I, you accomplished that. Good job. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is also, like... I think it's just interesting, like, uh, thematically, as far as, like, some of the stuff that you are talking about with the, like, what everyone's looking for on the, out of the passage, out of their boat, out of, you know, their life, whether, whatever they're trying to, you know, um, achieve for themselves, even if it's just, like, survival. Um, um, But how, how differently people have to play it with other people depending on what they need, they want or what they're trying to express is just, I think, universal and also right. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like Florian Flora's character is really meant to examine that the most directly, where yeah. they have, like, they're literally different genders, mm-hmm. gender identities dependent on context. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's a safety thing, too. But also absolutely. so, but also really felt for Florian because that, that was so um, manipulated by the people in power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, so one of the things that's sort of complicated about this story, and that I notice a lot of people being like, do the crew know that, you know, Flora was born Flora as a girl? And I was like, yeah, because I think that there's an interesting thing where masculinity demands, is so can be so fragile, mm-hmm. that it demands that other people conform to its sort of, like, violent toxicity and its worst iteration, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Flora is introduced to this toxically masculine space and Rake is trying to protect her, mm-hmm. he demands this sort of, uh, for her to conform um, yeah. and to change. And so I wanted, you know, we all know like the confessions of Charlotte Doyle and mm-hmm. Bloody Jack and like these other books about girls pretending to be boys uh, and no one on the crew knows. And mm-hmm. One of the things I always thought was hard about those plots is uh, when you live on a pirate ship, you see everyone shit and pee and, like, be naked. Yeah, Yeah, and I was like, I don't know that they would necessarily not know. Yeah. But I do think that there would be a demand for the performance of masculinity uh, on that person just the same as there is on everyone else. And so, I don't know, it, it really... I was really remembering when I was in high school and friends with a lot of guys and watching them be completely different people with me versus when they were with a group of guys. Yeah. Um, Because they'd be with me and they'd be, like, crying and telling me their feelings and, like, oh, you know, letting out all their heart. And then they'd get together with guys that'd be, like, punching each other and farting and terrible. And uh, I just... Yeah. 
I mean, what an exhausting charade, but yeah. also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought about that a lot. <laughs> so speaking of like how much, how intimate boat life is, I mean, when you were traveling, were you, or, and writing this, were you on boats at all? Or like what kind of pirate research did you get to do? Yeah, um, I did some reading, and now I can't remember some of the books that I read. The I did less research about pirates than I did about colonialism. I kind of felt like I could sort of make up what I wanted about pirates, because yeah. uh, it's a magical world, Fair. and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was, because I wanted so much to talk about colonialism, I did feel more of a responsibility to understand how it worked and how it spread. Um, and the kind of dumb luck that goes into conquering countries as opposed to genius. Mm-hmm. That a <laughs> uh, mistake, you know, for one another. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd say the most informative book that I read for this book was Guns, Germs, and Steel. Mm. Um, like, that was the most informative. That really um, did the most to directly inform the way that I thought about how power would function in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 1491 was really helpful as well. But also just being in South America uh, and driving through all these different countries and the different ways that they talk about Spain was fascinating. Um, like Cuba, the discourse in Cuba versus in uh, Ecuador, for mm, example. Okay. Completely different ways of talking about it. Um, and so... Like, how so? Give it, can you give us an example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, when you go to Cuba, it's very... Um, it was in the brief window when Obama had opened up mm. travel to Cuba again. So, on the one hand, people were very like, yes, come in. Like, we would love to have Americans here. Like, it could do so much for our economy. This is great. Welcome. But then you go to the museums, uh-huh. uh, and it's fairly, I feel... <laughs> very anti-American specifically Uh, and like you know you go to the the exhibit where they have made like a huge life-size diorama of where Che Guevara passed Uh, and the story that they tell about Che Guevara's death versus the one that we tell about Che Guevara's death it's different yeah you know like and so I'm always interested in that and I noticed that when I went to Vietnam as well and I went to the Museum of American Atrocities which is what it's called well fair (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. I in no way think yeah. that these countries are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> then you go to Ecuador and, like, they use American currency. Uh, and there's, like, yeah. a really, like, different feel about it. Um, yeah. I didn't, I have to admit that I didn't go to as many museums, but just culturally you can feel that the reception to American, you know, what is essentially American colonialism is a little less uh, aggravated uh. for obvious many historical reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in, oh God, in Chile, too, uh, the idea, like, the idea of American influence there is obviously incredibly toxic since we, you know, deposed a democratic leader there uh, not too long ago, and there are people who are still alive who can remember that. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know, I just, I really kept, that was my favorite part of traveling, was trying to pick up the different ways that different like the differences in the countries being so profound because I didn't have a sense of those countries identities before I went Mm -hmm. I had a sense of like oh well in Peru there's Machu Picchu and in Cuba they have all the cool cars (laughs) and 
and I hear there's steak. Yeah, fair. And all the things were true. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. So, uh, collecting kind of the different identities and kind of holding in my hands why those things would be true and why they would talk about it a certain way. Um, and the stories that they tell about themselves oh. were really important to me. Yeah. And if you read the book, it's sort of obsessed with stories mm-hmm. and the power that they have. Um, and I, I don't want to ruin it because there's like a whole sequence in the book where you learn how stories function in this world. But that came very much from traveling through this continent and like feeling the difference in the way that those narratives unfold. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was like, it, this, this, your book is a story, but the storytelling within the book is also a, a very interesting device on perspective and learning and how knowledge is transferred too. Um, yeah. and, and who hears what story and how they hear it is, um, uh, another angle as well. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we all know the adage that uh, history is written by the victors. Yeah, but that was the thing that I was thinking about a lot. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting, to, like from Evelyn's perspective, because you got from her what the like imperial story, so the like written history would be, and then like it's like I'm just thinking of the image of when she gets to the floating island. She's like, oh, that's why it's called floating island. <laughs> like, yeah, um, right. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the whole second section for Evelyn is a confrontation of like what she thought being imperial meant and what it means mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of evil fun writing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, and also I love the tie-in there too with the mermaids being born of memory, um, because it's supposed to. It's like we th- we think of our our memories are our own, and we think of memories as fact, but they're also filtered through our experience. So, like the mermaid is holding the memory of the sea, based yeah, on what the so- sea saw. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <Seesaw>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I do think that there's like a fundamental difference that I find really interesting, which is like the sea has memories that are so complete they can be a person, mm-hmm. whereas the people in the stories, the humans in the story, uh, really only have their own stories, and the idea of their truth being something that they can find, but that is different than the the story. And also different than the memories that the sea holds was an important kind of like philosophical choice for me. Yeah. Um, just in world building mm-hmm. because there is no kind of like objective truth really yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, but if there was, I do believe that like it's beyond human comprehension, mm-hmm. which is why the sea character was the hardest and most fun to write. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I genuinely don't have the intelligence to, like, empathize with that fully. Right. Uh, but it was the most, it felt like doing drugs to write. <laughs> right, right. No, it is, because it is, you're like, it's like when you write a god, well, it's a goddess. So it's yeah. like when you write a, from, if you've ever written a god character, it's like, this is like a mind trip to, like, think yeah. that, that fully. Yeah. Uh, you're like, Imagine you're omnipotent. You're yeah. Omnipotent. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but it also made me think that, like, like you just said, that the human, like, of course, a, a natural force would have a like memory so complete that it could be embodied in a creature. 
But it also made me think that like the human hack for that is that we create cultural identities by sharing stories. Like we don't, we don't have a human mermaid embodiment of our memory, but we'll tell a story about something and pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. And that becomes like a different way to hold that cultural memory. It's almost like, those are our own magic. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, but I really, mean, yeah. Yeah, stories are magic like yeah. that, where they define nations and they define ourselves for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such a profound and beautiful idea to me that if you can change this a story, you can change the world. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I just, I love that idea, and I the hopeful part of me wants to believe it so badly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this story is very much an extension of that. Um, yeah. What well, makes me think of like, if, I mean, I think this happens in like regular therapy, but also I think it happens for people who've had trauma or substance abuse or anything where it's like, if you can change the story that you're telling yourself while you're undergoing the trauma or alcohol abuse or whatever, while you're undergoing that difficult time, you tell yourself one story. If you change the story that you tell yourself, like it's often presented that like maybe you can shift the way your life will turn out or you can turn things around or you can heal from something. Yeah. 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 If, and I don't know if I will, but if I get a sequel, I am most interested in following Genevieve and Alfie for that reason. Mm. I feel like both of them have so much trauma in their past Yeah, and both of them were at moments of change in their lives when the story ends. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, if there is ever a sequel, it'll pick up with them. Yeah. For that reason. <laughs> yeah. I know that, that. I vote for a sequel, so let the people know. <laughs> <laughs> like, one in my column? All right. Yeah. <laughs> let them know. Somebody said. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that would, that would be, that would be really interesting, too. I mean, and, and then also, because the world that you've created has so, so many different places, like, literal places you could go, because they talk about so many different places that the, that the Imperial imperialists imperials imperials imperials, yeah. imperials go it's uh, because imperials who are imperialists yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um they 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 have conquered a lot of places and and i also love oh this was something i want to talk about um the imperials have conquered quote-unquote the known world right which like the minute you said that, I was like, but what's the unknown world? I know, right? <laughs> Yeah. And, and it made me, like, I loved it because it had a kind of a, like, you know, 1400 version of a, like, flat earth kind of thing where, like, you sail across right. the sea, get to the firmament, and then you're like, no, I'm in space. <laughs> like, heaven, the heavens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we still carry that kind of uh, cultural chauvinism with us just in the way we talk about new world, old world. Yeah. New world for the Americas, old world for Europe, which is wild. Yeah. When you think about how old the empires in South America were. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, that's another thing. That's why it's called the known world is because yeah. that chauvinism also became blazingly clear to me even before my visit to Machu Picchu. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're, uh, we, there was one point where we were driving through like incredibly rural like outback Peru, mm-hmm. uh, like no paved roads, um, just like these dusty winding mountain trails uh, through the Andes. And people are still using the terraces that the Incans built for their farms because yeah. they are so well constructed yeah. that they are still functional this many years later. Yeah. And I just. <sighs> and that's amazing because yeah. you think of like 
weather and erosion and agriculture, and it's like they did such a good job. Yeah. Like, rainy and erosion seems like it should have happened because it's on literal mountains. Yeah. (laughs) And no, they're just, they're there, and it's wild. And driving through that and being like, yeah, this is the new world seemed like a really dumb shit thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But the other part that I liked about that is you said kind of earlier on in this interview, and it's something that keeps coming up for me every time I read or think about mermaids, is the known world is like what we human people can see and explore. That's how we think of it, right? And then at the same time, we live on a planet that has like a ton of ocean, which is unknown. And I always think of mermaids as kind of like the way our imagination creates like an ambassador to that for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a beautiful idea. Yeah, because they're half familiar and half completely foreign. Um, I love that idea. And... Yeah, I just, I find the ocean so unfathomable and exciting. And the fact that we haven't explored so much of deep sea is the kind of thing that, like, gives me nightmares and also that I, like, must know more about. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. Well, and I talk about this with people a lot, too. And I, th- for me, it's like a mod. it's like a, because the thing is, like, the, the part of me that 100% believes in mermaids is, like, a very fantastical, imaginative person. The part of me that likes all the science is, like, but how far can the submarines go, you know? Um, but I think about, especially when I... Your your book, which has so much draws so much from like history um, and, and historical thinking, is the idea that the ocean is to people from a certain time in history what outer space is to us now. Where it's like completely we we're like there might be aliens because there might be things like us, but there might not be. You know, we we can't even. We, every time I think about how far away the sun is, I'm like, I can't even imagine that far. And I, right, still, right. I still can't imagine how deep the ocean is, even though, like, I've heard a number. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. It's like yeah. how you can't draw to scale the solar system yeah. that we exist in on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's just not big enough. Yeah. Uh, even if you just use, like, tiny dots to yeah. be the planets and the sun. Yeah. Um, I still feel that way about the ocean. I still feel like uh, we look upwards and we're like, that's unfathomable. And... I think that that's interesting, but my heart of hearts is definitely just looking at waves in the ocean and being like, how far does that go? Yeah. Where in it, um, what is it like 90% that we haven't explored of the ocean? It's like some ludicrously high percentage, uh, and, it, it, and it, I just think it's so rich for imaginative opportunity. Oh, and I think there's also like a, um, timeless quality to it too. Um, like what you're talking about, like looking at waves and it's like, these happen like minute by minute every day. They change. They like water is impermanent and like, it makes us feel like at once a part of something. And also you're like, that's not my native like environment. <laughs> um, right. Right. But it's also like in a very important part of the habitat that we exist in. Yeah. yeah. I, I did try to, um, you know, so I'm half Japanese, and I feel like Japan being an island nation uh, has a really interesting and fraught relationship with the ocean where, it, forgive me, mom, uh, like, there's just kind of that sense of, like, we own this. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, we're going to eat all this stuff from in it, and, like, on the one hand, I completely understand that, and on the other, I think there's this incredible arrogance um, and I don't mean to say Japan's the only nation that's like that. I feel like it's sort of inherent in island nations yeah. where there's 
such a human arrogance in our approach to the ocean where we're like, no, 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 it's huge and unfathomable and bottomless, but it's mine. Right. It's, uh, it's like if, if we live so close to it, obviously it can be ordered just like the way that we have ordered the land our house is on, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That is exactly what I'm trying to get at. And that's exactly the way that the Imperials think about the sea mm-hmm. to the point where they are literally condoning and encouraging the death of mermaids yeah. so that they can more effectively order it. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing, do they... It seems like they, they condone the drinking of the mermaid blood and whatever you, you can capture them and sell them. Do but they don't really do they get exactly how it works that it's the memories of the ocean or are they just like the oblivion of it? Yeah, okay. I imagined that most people just see think it's oblivion and that they hallucinate and that mm-hmm. that's their imaginations or something. So it's like mushroom uh, but, juice to them, kind of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's okay. like any other hallucinogen. Okay. Where it's like we don't need to know necessarily what how these visions come. I just know that I have visions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and the knowledge that that's actually the memories, um, would only be something that people who are sort of like intimately entwined with the sea and trusted would know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It definitely has like a dreamy quality. It was like when you were describing the way they like got the memories or the oblivion that they felt, felt like the closest that like you could come to that without drinking mermaid blood was like when you're in like dreaming on the water kind of. Yeah. 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 Um, there's like one dream sequence in the book and it was hard to write because I did want to gently hint that the character who is experiencing at it has some kind of magic in them already. Mm -hmm. Um, but that it didn't, wasn't so otherworldly and amazing that it would interfere with the idea of stealing memories from the sea. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but like a thin line, <laughs> right? Like a connection without having actually made that yeah. jump, right? And yeah. trespassed in that way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, I think we've covered everything. I mean, we went from like mermaid blood <laughs> to outer space, the whole history We're of the planet. So good job, us. <laughs> um, is there, so the book just came out. I should make yes. Yes. Um, yes. And is available everywhere. Um, is there anything like any last thing that you hope that people take from this or like get out of it? I mean, I feel like I had a lot of really serious ideas of what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the things that I was thinking about when I crafted it. But I hope when people read it that they just enjoy it. It's meant to be like an adventure story with romance and kissing and murder and like all the good stuff. Right, all the things you want. Uh, Dead bodies and smooching and the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. What else could you need? And so (laughs) I hope that, you know, if you listen to this and it sounds interesting, that's great. If you just like the title because you're like, F yeah, mermaids, mm-hmm. like you're invited to, it doesn't have to be like, I hope that you don't feel the burden of all the weird ideas yes, I was right. thinking about <laughs> when you read the book. I hope you're just reading to have fun. It does, that's what it, it does read like a, if you're like a fun boat adventure in a like, magical <laughs> world that feels somewhat familiar in a historical way, but also completely magical. So if you guys don't want to think about all the deep things we talked about, you can just read the fun book. For smooches and For smooches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one of my favorites. Some people are like, I put smooching and murder in it. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> yeah. So good. Really, the other thing that I thought about when I was writing this was when I was a teenager, I was not a huge reader. And when I did read, I wanted to read books where people had sex and they died. Yep. That was it. 
And if it didn't have those things, then I was like, why am I reading this? I've, and so you're welcome, teenagers who might pick this up. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I would be reading something and be like, I just got to fast forward for occult pages. And then if I saw that there was like sex or kissing, I was like, okay, we can proceed. <laughs> like, I'll okay. go back to the thing. Yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah, that's how every 14-year-old reads The Mist yeah. of Avalon. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> You're like, oh, good. They're going to talk about this. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yes, awesome. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell people where to find you and where to find the book? Totally. So firstly, you can find the book, The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea, by me, Maggie Takuda Hall, uh, basically anywhere where books are sold, um, from your independent bookstore, from bookshop.org. Uh, IndieBound is a great place to check for it. You can always check Barnes & Noble, Target, and Amazon as well. They are able to sell you copies, too. Um, my name, again, is Maggie Takuda Hall, and you can follow me on Twitter at E-M-T-E-E-H-A-L-L. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a total delight. Yeah, it was. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend or leave a review. Reviews are really important because they help other mermaid lovers find us. The easiest way to leave a review is right in the app that you are using to listen to this episode or leave a review on our Facebook page. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, the best thing to do is sign up for our email list. We only send you emails that you like about new episodes and you will get exclusive behind the scenes content that you won't see anywhere else. Join the email list by dropping your email address into the sign up form, which you can find in any of the episode show notes at mermaidpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Mermaid Podcast, and we always love to see you on social media. Again, we'll have links to all of the mermaid news mentioned in this episode on our website, mermaidpodcast.com. Our jingle was recorded by Tori Scott, the world-famous cabaret singer. You can find Tori at itstoriescott.com. And the Mermaid Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts that you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thank you for listening, and remember, don't quit your daydream. It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that